Let's turn to God's word now and consider that hope together. You may be seated. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 49 this morning. Genesis 49. While you're turning there, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. I'm so glad that you are joining us. As I said, we're in the book of Genesis. We're finishing our study in this book that we've been in for a very long time. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we are at the very end of that book. If you're not used to handling a Bible, the chapter numbers, 49, that's the big number, and we are starting in verse 29. Those are the little numbers that you'll see scattered throughout the text. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the words up on the screen. So we're going to be in Genesis 49, starting in verse 29, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the book of Genesis. So please follow along with me. Then he, being Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they had come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God 
of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we come to the end of our study in the book of Genesis, I was reminded of the famous words of Winston Churchill. Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. We've come a long way in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, as we have called it in this series, and now at last we reach the end. But it isn't the end of the biblical story. In fact, it's far from it. There are still 65 more books in the Bible that you have to read. (laughs) Nearly two millennia of the biblical narrative of God's redemption worked out. And then on top of that, there's two more millennia of God working by his Holy Spirit through the church up until today, up until this very moment in your own life. So this is not the end, but it is the end of the beginning. And as we read these final verses of the book of Genesis, it kind of seems like death has the last word, doesn't it? The structure of this closing section that we're looking at, it's book-ended with two stories about death. First, the death of Jacob, and then the death of Joseph. And it's a fitting reminder at the end of the Genesis story of what came at the very beginning of the fall into sin, When God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, for on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. This section calls to mind the tragic refrain that we heard from the genealogy of Adam all the way to Noah, and he died, and he died, and he died. But for all the lamentation and grief In our passage, and as we'll see, it is real lamentation and real grief. But for all of the grief, the overall impression that we should leave this text with is not hopelessness in the face of death and in the fallen condition of this world, but hopefulness. Why? Because of the central statement in this passage, what comes sandwiched in between these two stories about death Joseph's declaration to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 20. God is in control, and God has a plan. 
So how do we find strength to go on when we lose a loved one? How are are we able to endure the evil that is done to us with mercy and grace? How do we make sense of all of the chaos and sadness in this fallen world around us and not only make sense of it, but to find hope in it? How? This passage tells us we have a sovereign God who has a good plan for his people. So we'll work through this passage in three sections this morning. And first, we will consider the story of the death of Jacob. We'll call this first point, Israel's grief. So this goes all the way through verse 14 of chapter 50. So remember the context, what we looked at last week. Jacob, also named Israel, he has gathered his 12 sons around him on his deathbed. He has given to each a a prophetic blessing or at least a prophetic pronouncement of what will come to pass for each of their tribes in the future. Then in verse 29 of our passage, chapter 49, Jacob says, I am to be gathered to my people, which is a euphemistic way of saying he knows that he is about to die. And then he makes this request of his sons that they bury him in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the land of of Canaan. He says this is the cave that Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. This is a reference to an event that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 23. Jacob says in verse 31, there in that cave they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And they, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah, my wife. And he died. And she died. And they died. And we're buried. Jacob says, bury me there in that same cave. In fact, he's already made this request once already back in chapter 47. There he made Joseph swear a solemn oath. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Now that might just seem like sentimentality on Jacob's part, that he wants to be laid to rest with his loved ones. There's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly not less than that. But there's actually something much more significant in this request that Jacob is making. It's significant because this cave and the plot of land and all the details around the circumstances of them acquiring this land, that land is the very first piece of the promised land of Canaan that the people of God have ever possessed. Abraham bought it. It was like a down payment or a guarantee that this little parcel of land was going to be the first part of the whole land that God would give to the people of Israel. Abraham bought it in hope that God would fulfill the promises that he made to him all the way back in chapter 12, that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation, that he was going to give them that very land, all of it, the land of Canaan, and that through that nation, in that land, that people was going to be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. So Abraham bought that field in hope, and now Jacob says, bury me there, because he has the same hope. He has the same faith as Abraham, that God will fulfill his promises, that he will give them that land. Now we're gonna, in our third point, we're gonna see that same hope emerging again with the death and burial of Joseph. And so we'll wait to consider that hope when we get here. But in this first point, I just wanna look at the response to Jacob's death that we see played out here because it's very long and it's very detailed. Beginning in chapter 50, verse one, We get Joseph's own grief expressed. He falls on his father's face. He weeps. He kisses him. 
Then Joseph gives orders for Jacob to be embalmed after the Egyptian fashion. You know what that means? He's mummified. He was made into a mummy, which I'm sorry, that's cool. I think that's cool. If I had that option, I might want to be a mummy. There are only two people in the whole Bible that are mummified uh, in the people of Israel. It's, It's Jacob and Joseph. After he is embalmed after the Egyptian fashion, then the text recounts a long period of public mourning for Jacob, 70 days. And then after that, Jacob makes a request of Pharaoh, please give me a leave of absence so that I can fulfill the oath that I swore to my father that he would be buried in the land of Canaan. Pharaoh lets them go, and that's what they do. They go back to Canaan, and look at verse 10. It says, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation and made mourning for their father for seven days. Do you see what Moses, the author, is trying to do there? He's trying to stress this is serious grieving. There is a lot of sadness. There is much lamentation. Because Jacob, Israel, he was the head of the nation. And he was the last of the biblical patriarchs. He was the one who received the promises of God renewed at Bethel. He was the one who wrestled with God and saw God face to face and walked with a limp for the rest of his life. This is the loss of a great man. And it's also the loss of their dad. And so this kind of grief, this great lamentation, it's appropriate. And more than that, it's instructive for us. There's a lot that we can learn about grieving in this passage. I want to give special thanks to my sisters, Sheree Hinojosa and Marsha Ash. I reached out to them and I just asked them for, for their thoughts on this passage. If you don't know Sheree and Marsha, they help lead our Grief Share Ministry, which is a support group that we have for men and women who have lost a loved one. And it helps them walk in Christian hope in the face of death. And, and if that's you, if you have lost someone, even if it's been a long time since you have lost someone that you love and you are still trying to understand how God's word applies to that, you should participate in this ministry that we have. We have a new group starting in January. But I asked Sheree and Marsha for their thoughts partly because they're ministering to grieving people all the time and then these sisters themselves have experienced their own loss. And I wanted to know, what, what should we be thinking about as we study this passage? And as I expected, it was incredibly helpful. There's so much that we can learn about how to respond to death in this. I think one big thing to see is just that it's okay to be sad. Jacob's family felt all the freedom in the world to express their emotions after their father's death. They cried. They wept. It's okay. You know what? In fact, that's appropriate. That's the right thing to feel in the face of death because death is not normal. Death is not natural. Death is not the way that it is supposed to be. Death does sting. And so when you lose someone that you love, you don't, you don't need to push those emotions down. You don't need to feel pressure to move on. You just can release those emotions. Those are right emotions. And that's what the family of Jacob does here. And another thing that we see that they do well is they take time to grieve and lament. This is months of sadness. They don't feel any pressure to get over it. They just sit in it. Because it is sad, and, and you don't know what it's going to take to work through these different feelings, and, and it's okay to just take time. But I think the most important observation that we can make that applies to all of us, no matter what situation you're in, is that it wasn't just the immediate family of Jacob that grieved his loss. 
I think one of the most fascinating things about this passage is how much is talked about the Egyptians grieving. The foreigners, the pagans. This isn't Israel's family, and yet they are described over and over again as grieving with Israel. Now, I think on one level, that is because Joseph has become so prominent in their society, that he is the second in command, and and really he's the savior of Egypt. He has led them through this famine, and so they want to honor him by honoring their father and his death. But I think we can see, too, how much that must have just been a support to Israel in their grieving, that everyone around them was mourning with them. In verse 11, after they take this huge procession where Pharaoh has sent leaders of the Egyptian uh, dynasty to go and bury Jacob with the Israelites, when the Canaans look and see the Egyptians are so many and have identified so much with Israel in their grief that the Canaanites say, this is a grievous lamentation by the Egyptians. The Egyptians are so with Israel in their grieving that it's like it's their grief. This isn't Israel's grief, this is the Egyptians' grief. They are sad with Israel. So church, let's be like that. When we have friends, certainly when we have brothers and sisters in our church who have lost someone, let's be with them in their grief. Let's let them be sad. Let's give them time. Let's not pressure them to move on. But instead, let's let their grief be our grief. Let's talk with them about how sad they are. Let's talk with them about the one that they love. And you know what? They will probably start crying. And you know what you can do? Cry with them. Grieve with them. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 15. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Just like the Egyptians did. But like I said, Israel isn't grieving as those who are without hope. Actually, the whole fact that they went to Canaan to bury their father was because they had a future hope, that they knew that God's plan involved this land, and they were waiting for it. They were waiting for the day that God would fulfill that promise and carry out the plan that he had revealed to them. So that brings us to this next point, number two, God's plan. So this is chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. And as is so often the case in families when a loved one dies, for everyone that is surviving, kind of brings some stuff out to the surface that needs to be dealt with, right? So in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now I think it's hard to tell whether or not the brothers are lying here. Genesis never records Jacob having this conversation with these other brothers. It could have happened. But we have also uh, seen that the brothers are not beyond lying to protect themselves. There's not enough evidence, I think, to say either way. What there is evidence for, what we do know for certain is that the brothers recognize that what they did to Joseph was wrong. They refer to their own actions as transgression, as sin, and as evil. They own their sin. They don't give the non-apology apology to Joseph, right? They don't go to Joseph and say, Joseph, we're really sorry if you felt bad that we beat you and threw you into a pit and then sold you into slavery. 
No, they say, that was wrong. What we did was wrong. They own it, and they recognize that they are entirely dependent on Joseph's mercy. The tables have completely turned here from that day when they used their power and their strength to abuse him and throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. Now he's the one with all the power. Now he is the one who, at a word, could have them killed. And so they recognize they are entirely dependent on his mercy, and they ask for his forgiveness, and they wait for a response. And Joseph's response is, I think, one of the most startling and remarkable statements in the whole Bible. Still in verse 17, he weeps when they spoke to him. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him. Another fulfillment of that dream that he had when he was a little kid. They're falling down before him. They say, behold, we are your servants. But verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So there's no desire for vengeance. There's no wrath. Instead, there is kindness and compassion and provision. He promises to take care of them and provide for their kids, not just to let them live, but to lavish his blessings upon them. How is this possible? How can Joseph have such an attitude of grace and forgiveness towards these people who have done so much evil against him? Because Joseph has really good theology. I mean it. There are two important truths that Joseph is holding on to that allow him to respond this way. The first in verse 19 is that he knows he's not God. What's he say? Am I in the place of God? He understands the biblical principle that gets expressed in Deuteronomy 32 that the apostle Paul again brings up in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So Joseph says, I'm not God. It's not my place to enact judgment on anyone. And just stop and think about this. Okay, this was blowing my mind when I was studying this, okay? Think about how all of this mess started in the first place. What was the fall into sin? What was the lie that Adam and Eve believed? That they could be like God. And you come all the way here to the end, and what does Joseph do? He's met with that same temptation, and what's he say? I'm not in the place of God. Oh, what a note of hope at the end of the beginning that there can be someone who is a better Adam, who doesn't give in to the temptation, who resists that temptation. It's Joseph emerging as a better Adam as he has already before in this study. So that's the first thing that Joseph sees. He knows that he isn't God. And the other truth that he holds on to is that he knows that he can trust God, who he is not. He can trust God and wait for God to act and carry out his plan. This is what he says in verse 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph understands and believes in the doctrine of God's providence, that God is in complete control of everything that happens, and that even the worst things that happen 
are a part of God's good plan. We've seen this worked out in the story of Joseph already. All of the evil that his brothers did to him, all the evil and suffering that befell him after that first act of evil. We've seen as we've looked at this that all of this had to happen just the way that it did. Being sold as a slave, being falsely accused, being stuck in the prison, being forgotten. That all had to happen so that Joseph at just the right time could emerge and could be elevated to the second in command of all of Egypt. And then from that place, he could carry out a plan that would lead to the salvation of untold people, both in Egypt and in his own family. It had to happen just like that. And Joseph has this perspective. He sees that in all of that bad stuff, God was working. God's intention was on display. God's purposes were revealed. These evil things that happened were a part of God's plan so that so many people could be saved. We have to be really clear here. This doesn't mean that what they did wasn't actually wrong. No, it was evil. They admitted as much. So just because good came out of it, that doesn't change the fact that it was an evil thing that they did. Joseph doesn't say, oh guys, you know what? Don't worry about it. What you did was actually a good because good came out of it. No, he says, what y'all did was evil. You did evil to me. But God meant it for good. There are two different agents working through the same action, but with very different purposes. And we have to be really clear on that point too, that just because God had a plan and God was an active agent in this evil thing that his brothers did, that does not mean that God did evil. Nowhere does the Bible ever hold God accountable for the sinful choices of human beings. Humans are always held accountable. They are responsible for their actions. But while it's true, and we, and we hold these things in tension, and there's a lot of mystery here, and I know that's really going to bother some of you. While it's clear that humans are responsible and accountable for their actions, the Bible is also very clear that nothing happens ever apart from God's sovereign and divine plan which he established before the foundation of the world. We love to hear that God has a plan for your life, don't you? We love to hear that when it has to do with good things. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's true, but we have to remember, like Joseph does here, that God having a good plan for your life doesn't mean that only good things will happen to you. What it means is that even the bad things that happen to you are a part of God's good plan. I'm gonna say that again. God having a good plan for your life doesn't mean that only good things will happen to you. What it means is that even the bad things that happen to you are a part of God's good plan. Knowing that God is good and does good, even when people sin against us, that truth is what Joseph needed to be able to forgive his brothers. He can let go of any lingering resentments because he trusts that God had a purpose for it all. And he can see it in his own life. He has that perspective. And and while that verse 20 and chapter 50, it kind of helps us understand the Joseph story, I think it actually helps us understand the whole book of Genesis. This could almost be like a key passage to understand everything that has happened in the book of Genesis, because there's been a lot of evil in the book of Genesis, right? There's been a lot of people hurting other people. There's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of death. You can go all the way back to the very beginning, and I think this verse helps us understand 
the whole story, what Adam meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring it about that many people might be alive as they are today. It is a mystery, but it is true. So verse 20, it can help us understand Joseph's story, can help us understand the whole book of Genesis, but it can also help you understand your own life. It can help you understand all of the ways that you've been sinned against, all of the ways that you have been hurt, all of the suffering that some of you have had to go through, even death and grief and loss. Not only the things that have happened to you, all of the sins that you have committed against others, all the ways that you have hurt others, the evil things that you have done, the things that you have had to ask for forgiveness, and if you haven't, you ought to, certainly of God, asking God for forgiveness, even those things, all of those evil things, they didn't happen apart from God's plan. They are a part of God's plan, and in that we have hope. Now, sometimes God gives us a glimpse of how this all works. Like Joseph. Joseph is just in this great place where he can look back and say, oh, that's why that all had to happen like that. God had a plan. And maybe you've seen that in your own life. Man, if I hadn't lost my job as hard as that was, or if I had been allowed to marry that person that I really thought was the one, well, my life would be completely different and not for the better. God had a plan in these things that were hard at the time. Sometimes God gives us those glimpses of perspective. And, and I think we should try to train ourselves to understand everything that happens in our life as part of God's plan and try to see it worked out in this life. When I, uh, when I started seminary, in my, one of my very first classes, it was like an introduction to ministry class, and the professor had us do this really great exercise. He called it stars and scars. And what we had to do is we had to list the five very best things that happened in your life. Getting married, having your first kid, this opportunity that opened up and you took it and the five very worst things that have ever happened in your life. And you had to kind of write it out like an autobiography and you had to consider them and then what you had to do is you had to reflect on those things, both the best things and the worst things and how God might be using those things as a part of his plan to uniquely equip you for the ministry that he has called you of building up his church. It was helpful for me and I put that exercise to you because you all have a ministry in this church. You are all called to be a part of the plan that God has for building up the church into maturity into Christ. So have you suffered wrongs at the hands of someone else years ago? Maybe God wants to use that experience to help you love and care for and even offer biblical counseling to someone who's going through the very same thing right now. Did you grow up without loving, believing parents? Maybe God wants to use your experience to help you better care for kids and youth in our church or even to adopt an orphan. Have you lost someone you love? Have you known grief and sorrow in your life? You're not alone. And maybe the way forward is for God to use your own experience of grief to care for others who are grieving themselves. Sometimes God gives us a glimpse or, or an idea, a vision for how he's using even the worst things to bring about his good purposes in our own lives. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes there are things that, that are so evil and so grievous that, that it just, there's no way 
we can understand how this is a part of God's plan, but it is. And so in those moments when you just can't see how it works and we fall back on verses like Genesis 50, 20, we know this is true. God's word says it is true. Even if we can't see how it's going to work out, even if there is no way for it coming to to some kind of nice conclusion in our own lifetimes, that's when we remember that our hope is not in things getting resolved in our own lifetimes. We have a future hope. That brings us to this last point. Call this Joseph's bones. This is beginning in verse 22, going through the end of the book. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book of Genesis ends with a coffin. And like I said, Joseph, in this uh, appeal that he makes to his brothers, he is expressing the same hope that Jacob had. Their future is not in Egypt. Their future is in Canaan, just like God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But there's, there's something new in this. Jacob said, bury me as fast as you can in Canaan. Get me back to that burying place. But Joseph says, God will visit you. The word visit, it means like God's gonna show up in amazing power and demonstrate his sovereignty by delivering you. So Joseph says, I know that God is going to visit you. What's he referring to? The exodus the exodus out of Egypt when God shows up and delivers his people, takes them out in mass out of Egypt, including the herds and including the little kids, including the women. He takes them all out and takes them into the promised land. But you know what? That's 400 years after Joseph is speaking. Joseph is banking his hope on something that's gonna happen hundreds of years after he died. But he's so certain of that future deliverance that he calls it. Look, I know God is going to come and visit you. And when he does, you better not leave my bones here. I want to be buried in the, in the promised land because that is where our future lies. Now, this is, this is just another cool thing. When you're studying the Bible, this is why you need to read the Bible over and over and over again because you start to pick up on these little things that you've never noticed before. So I won't take you all over the Old Testament. I wish I could. But... Joseph makes his brother swear this promise to him here at the end of Genesis. Well, if you keep on reading in Exodus, 400 years later, you get to Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. It's a little verse. There's a ton of other stuff happening. The the Passover has already happened. The crossing of the Red Sea is about to happen. But right there, just a little bit, while all of this stuff is going on, verse 19, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So when the exodus happens, Moses didn't forget. They grabbed the bones. And then everything that follows in the the story, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, they're walking around, they're wandering through the wilderness, they go to Mount Sinai, all of that stuff. The whole time for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they've got Joseph's bones with them. They're carrying a coffin around. And what a sign of hope that would have been. 
all of those years. What's that coffin mean? God made us promises. And he is going to come through on those promises. So keep going. Keep moving forward. So if you keep reading, then you come to the book of Joshua. Okay? And at the very, very end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, which is like almost the last verse of the whole book of Joshua. Joshua is about God fulfilling the promise to give to Israel the promised land. He miraculously helps them defeat all of the enemies that were there. He gives them the land. They've spread out. They have settled in. In Joshua chapter 24, 32, it says, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. Did God keep his promises? Did God keep his promises to Joseph? Did God keep his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Israel? Will God keep his promises to you? You bet he will. Not even death, not even hundreds of years can stop God from keeping his promises. That's pretty cool, huh? You know what? We have this hope more firmly established. Because as cool as Joseph's bones are, they're still in the ground. They're exactly where they buried them. But we have an even more amazing story. And Micah read it for us this morning. There is a detailed account of another funeral at the end of every gospel book in our New Testament. That's the death and burial of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ is central to the biblical story. And everything that happened to Joseph in the book of Genesis, it is just forecasting it. We've already seen this again and again. Jesus Christ was the favored son of God. Joseph was a righteous man. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He never sinned. And he resisted the devil's temptations every day of his life. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And he was betrayed by his own people. He was subjected to an unjust trial under false accusations. He was beaten and mocked. Jesus made your grief his own grief. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And they laid him in a tomb. They laid him in the tomb of a guy named Joseph. Coincidence? But the New Testament authors are very clear. There were many witnesses who saw the body of Jesus. And they were preparing to venerate his bones the same way that they had Joseph's, the same way that they had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it wasn't an accident that Jesus died. This was part of God's plan. As we said, there are evil things that happen, but they don't happen apart from God's plan. And the way that we know that more than anything else is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was the most evil thing that has ever happened to anyone in the history of the world. And if that wasn't a part of God's plan, then none of it is. And you are without hope. And all of this is meaningless, but it was a part of God's plan. What they did for evil to Jesus on the cross, God meant for good, that many might be saved as they are today. This is how the apostle Peter narrates it in Acts chapter two. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, Paul, or Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You hear that? God has a plan. You, evil men, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is what we have been singing all morning. Jesus Christ died. He had to die. He had to die according to God's plan because we needed a substitute. We needed a sacrifice because every one of us has sinned against God. Every one of us has done evil. Every one of us has transgressed God's commandments. And so we approach God like Joseph's brothers did. We fall down owning our sin, laying ourselves out before God's mercy and waiting for a response. And Jesus Christ, who is in the place of God, because he is God, when he looks at you confessing your sins and asking for his mercy, does not respond with vengeance, does not respond with wrath, but he responds with kindness and compassion and forgiveness, and not just that, blessing, provision. I'm gonna give you everything that you will ever need for the rest of eternity because he knows that God has a plan and that he is the fulfillment of that plan and that Jesus Christ died as a substitute to suffer all of the wrath that you deserve. Jesus Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God. He died on the cross, they laid him in the tomb, and it could just be one more in that long line. And he died, and he died, and he died. But Christ, unlike Joseph, unlike Abraham, unlike Adam, died and then was raised from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ destroyed the power of death once and for all. So we know that death does not have the final word because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. God has loosed the power of death. Death no longer has a sting. We always think of 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who are gathered to their fathers, those who have died in Christ. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, what's that say? Christians grieve, but we grieve differently. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If you have believed in Christ, that is your future too. The coffin at the end of Genesis, that's the end of the beginning. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the end. And that's where we're headed if we've believed the gospel. That's our future hope. I'm so glad that we're having a baptism service today. In our church, we practice what's called believer's baptism by immersion. What that means is that everyone who is going to be baptized this morning, they have already put their trust in Jesus. They share the same faith as Abraham. 
they believe that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and more than that has been raised for their eternal hope. And when we baptize them, we're gonna stick them all the way in the water and then they're gonna come out. And we do that for a few reasons. One, we think that's how Jesus was baptized. We think that's what the Bible says, that Jesus went down and then he came up. But one, another reason that we do that is that there's an, a very important symbol in that. That baptism is a metaphor, it's imagery symbolizing death and burial. You have died with Christ. You are nailed to the cross with Christ, united to Christ and all of your sin with you. And just as Christ came up out of the grave, so too these brothers and sisters are gonna come up out of the water, bursting forth. Paul in Romans 6 says that that is so that they will walk in newness of life. They are already experiencing the end of the, what am I saying, the beginning of the end already. They're already walking in resurrection hope. But what you're about to see is a kind of prophecy in itself that every one of these people who are being baptized, just like they shoot up out of the water, one day their bodies are gonna come up out of the grave because Christ is risen from the dead. That's their future hope. And as you watch this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's your future hope. Your body will burst up out of the grave too. And so will everyone that you have lost that you love who has died in Christ. They too will be raised. And in that day, Brothers and sisters, in that day when you are raised from the dead, you will look back with perfect perspective on the timeline of history. You will see everything that happened, not just in your life, but in everyone's life, both the stars and the scars. You will look back with perfect eternal perspective and you will say, oh, now I get it. It had to be just like that so that God could use what people meant for evil to bring it about that many people would be alive today. Hallelujah. You will look back on the timeline of redemptive history and you will say, God is good and he only does good. But church, you're also gonna look forward. You're gonna look forward and you're gonna see glory land. You're gonna see our eternal hope. I love that song that we sang just before we started the sermon, let me conclude with these words again. When we're in glory land, the doctor will not have to call. The undertaker, no. There'll be no pain up there to bear. Just walk the streets of gold. We'll see no sun in glory land. The moon and stars won't shine. For Christ himself is light up there. He reigns in love divine then weep not friends I'm going home up there we'll die no more no coffins will be made up there no graves on that bright shore let's pray now what a hope we possess in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised Lord God, I pray that you would help all of us to hope in that gospel and to know that you do have a good plan. And God, I pray that we would see ways in our own life that you are working things together for good, but Lord, I pray most of all that you would give us hope that even when we don't understand, even when we can't see, we know that this is true, that you are good and you are doing good all the time. God, we thank you for 
these four who are being baptized this morning. And God, as we consider now their testimonies of your work of grace in their life, I pray that you would help those of us who have believed to just be reminded of how their God is our God and their hope is our hope and that we too will be raised. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't yet put their hope in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would use these baptisms as a mean of testifying, of speaking to that good news and that you would work in their hearts to give them the same hope so that we will all be together in glory land. Amen.